Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Building a Business with Intention, the $5 billion Callan Family Office Recipe for Success. It's a conversation with Jack Ginter, CEO and partner of Callan Family Office. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is the Diamond Podcast for Financial Advisors. This podcast is designed for advisors like you, who are interested in learning more about the evolving wealth management industry through candid dialogue with breakaway advisors, those from the C-suite, and industry thought leaders. It's available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. So be sure to subscribe and share it with your colleagues. At Diamond Consultants, our mission is to help advisors live their best business life. We want every elite advisor to find exactly the right place for their business and their clients to thrive, whether it's at a wirehouse, a regional, boutique, or independent firm. As the industry's leading recruiters and consultants, we've transitioned more than a quarter of a trillion dollars in assets under management in the past decade. And each year, 25% of transitioning advisors who manage a billion dollars or more are our clients. Curious about where, why, and how advisors like you are moving? Download the latest advisor transition report to learn more, including intel on recruiting deals and our insight and analysis on the latest trends in the wealth management space. You'll find it at diamond-consultants.com forward slash transition report. Or if you'd like to talk, feel free to give us a call at 908-879-1002. What does it really take to build a world-class advisory business? In particular, one that serves a complex, ultra-high net worth client, innately discerning in the service they receive and the relationship they have with their advisors. Jack Ginter tackled the answers to these same questions over the course of his three-decade career serving the ultra-high net worth client space. Ultimately, the answer seems quite simple. As Jack shares, it came down to the recognition that clients at that level of wealth had different expectations, and to meet those expectations meant thinking differently about the service model they delivered. And it's advice that's relevant to advisors serving all client segments, from the mass affluent on up, as competition from all corners of the industry drives the need to offer clients more than core planning and investment services. For Jack, it was a strategic awakening that occurred while he was the president of Abbott Downing, Wells Fargo's ultra-high net worth business unit, where he oversaw the merger of legacy family office businesses, which accounted for more than $50 billion in assets under management. Over time, the reality became apparent that to serve clients of this caliber with multi-generational wealth meant delivering much more than what was available in the out-of-the-box solution environment that is typical in big brokerage firms. It meant customization on a level that is only possible in independence. So Jack launched Callan Family Office, a uniquely self-financed independent firm 
partnered with the deep resources of Callan LLC, one of the largest independently owned investment consulting firms in the U.S. Yet Jack's story is much more than his blockbuster break from Abbott Downing in 2021 that led him to launching the now $5 billion independent firm. It's one that reminds advisors to ask that all-important question, how can we best serve our clients? In this episode with Lewis Diamond, Jack talks candidly about his decades of experience in the wealth management industry, the decision to leave his role at Abbott Downing, the choice to launch Callan Family Office without taking on debt or selling equity, the specific client needs he sought to address, the competitive advantage he sees in independence, the value of customization and what it really takes to go head-to-head with the biggest firms in the business, and ultimately, advice for advisors of all levels on what you need to pay attention to when taking your business up market. It's a great story, so let's get to it. Jack, thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. Very good. Why don't you walk us through your background before entering the wealth management world, which ultimately led you to Wells Fargo in, I believe, 2009? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, Lewis, I started my career at the Philadelphia National Bank Training Program. And at the time, out of coming out of St. Joe's in Philadelphia, it was a two-year program where every six months we had an opportunity to go to a different section of the bank to really learn that business. And so, The first chapter after coming out of the training program, which was a fantastic experience, by the way, and not only from an educational standpoint, but I have so many relationships that I still have from that time starting in my career. But the first chapter for me was really in corporate banking and then asset-based finance and then some mezzanine finance. And so that's really where I started. I started in a banking environment. I then went to a firm called Paragon Capital. That was an asset-based lender. And just a little over 20 years ago is when I made the decision that I wanted to change. And that ultimately, based on some advice from some mentors, made the move over into the wealth management space. And the first stop for me was at Wachovia. And I was a partner in their wealth management business in Philadelphia. And then I was really attracted to the work that was going on at U.S. Trust. And so I spent time there, became the head of Pennsylvania at U.S. Trust, some just terrific colleagues there in the firm, and ultimately made a decision to change really based on the fact that B of A had come in to acquire U.S. Trust. I just thought long-term, it wasn't the best opportunity for me, and then made my way to Caliber, which was the ultra-high net worth business of Wachovia, and that really just started my passion for this part of the business in the ultra-high net worth space, and obviously, Wachovia was acquired by Wells. And that's how I got to Wells in 2009. It's a long path, but everything happens for a reason. Did you always know that you wanted to be in the ultra, ultra high net worth space? Or was it just circumstance that led you to U.S. trust and ultimately focusing on on that client segment? I had the opportunity early on to work with some of the largest, most complex clients when I was in a private banking environment and just increasingly was attracted to the complexity of those relationships Oftentimes, they're working with the leading advisors around the country, and so that was attractive. And so that really became the passion, and it wasn't intentional to start, but it became a passion 
for me in the business to work specifically in that end on the ultra high net worth side. So let's talk about the path toward Wells Fargo and, and Abbott Downing. You joined Caliber, which was the ultra high net worth segment of Wachovia. Wachovia is bought by, by Wells Fargo. Can you talk about the migration from that environment into Wells Fargo? And I assume Abbott Downing was, was part of that journey. Yeah. And so at the very beginning, there were really three separate businesses now inside of Wells Fargo. After the acquisition of Wachovia, you had Caliber on the East Coast. There was a legacy business, Lowry Hill, started by Dick Kovacevic in the Midwest. And then there was a family wealth business started by Wells Fargo on the West Coast. And a decision sometime after the acquisition was made, a decision was made, let's find a way to bring all of those businesses together. They were similar clients. While we had different approaches based upon the nature of the family, whether it was generational wealth, entrepreneurial wealth, we had similar characteristics in all of those businesses. And so those businesses ultimately came together. They were branded Abbott Downing. And that was the beginning of that business inside of Wells Fargo. And was really an incredible journey of building that business inside the bank over the course of a little bit over 10 years with an incredibly talented team. So can you talk a little bit about how Abbott Downing was different from the Wells Fargo private client group, which is their W2 wirehouse channel? Obviously, it's very different from Finet, their independent channel. So how did Abbott Downing differ? And also maybe compare it to the Wells Fargo private bank. I don't know if that was around, around the same time. Yeah. So all those businesses at the time were part of a division called Wealth and Investment Management inside of Wells Fargo. And so you had the broker dealer, you had the private bank, and then you had Abbott Downing. All of those business lines had large clients, but Abbott Downing was built exclusively to serve the ultra high net worth client base. So at the end of the day, it was really a strategy around clients. And it was a recognition that clients at that level of wealth had different expectations and so we had to think differently about a service model, had different needs, and often had a fair amount of complexity to it. And so the whole business was structured around the needs of those clients. And so in the very early days, there were three separate businesses operating inside of that division at Wells. And how was Abbott Downing then different from the private bank? I've always thought of private banks as being reserved for the ultra wealthy. Was Abbott Downing going even more upmarket than, than the private bank? Yeah, the primary difference, Lewis, is that the clients were different. And so all of our clients had multi-generational wealth. And so the approach that we took, the planning was different. The investment offering, I mean, when you think about asset allocation for a $100 million client and the opportunities that are available to them, it looks different than a client that's in the private bank at $10 million as an example. And so foundationally, when you looked at the business, family office services, family governance and education, the investment offering, all those things were different because it was a different client versus having a different business. Understood. So let's talk about Callum today and the business you've built. I know I saw you just, you on camera, you, your face just lit up so you can talk about this incredible firm you've built. So can you share a little bit about the business that you built today, what types of clients you work with and any metrics you can share to, to give the audience a perspective? The only thing that I would say just to start, I would say it's really a firm that we have built. And so today, in 20 months, we have 36 professionals in the firm, Lewis. 23 are founding partners of the firm. Geographically, we are between West Palm on the East Coast and Radnor, which is where I'm sitting today in our Radnor office. We have a team in the Midwest in Minneapolis. 
And then we have a team on the West Coast, just outside of San Francisco, led by our chief investment officer, Doug Evans. And so 100% employee owned and really central to the value proposition of Kellen Family Office, we have built been built exclusively to serve ultra high net worth clients. And so over these 20 months, the business has grown to, we're approaching our first $5 billion in assets. And the average relationship that we have today is just over $100 million. So we've been very fortunate. It has been an incredible run with some extraordinarily talented people building this firm over the last 20 months. Wow. So I would say you're in the maybe ultra high net worth segment. Does this calendar have minimums? And I guess why the intense focus on the upper echelons of, of American wealth? I know I've spoken to some guests who talk about the, the sweet spot from a profitability standpoint is probably like the three to $10 million client. As you get larger and larger, you need more resources, fees are customized, it tends to become a lower margin business. So I packed a lot into that question, but uh, can you talk about if Kellen has minimums and why the focus on the very upper end of the spectrum? And so help me unpack it depending on how I give the answer along the way. Everything that we have done, Lewis, in the firm today, we think about how do we best serve clients, families, foundations, and endowments, $50 million and above. And so that really is the focus that we have in the firm. We certainly have clients that have asked us to start with less. And so we would start a relationship with $25 million, but everything we built is meant to speak to that client that has multi-generational wealth that looks more institutional. That's really where our background and experience is. When you look at the team inside of Kellen Family Office, I would argue it's the most experienced team in the ultra high net worth business today. And so it's a significant differentiator for us. And we really believe that we have the talent and acumen inside of our firm to really speak directly to those clients. One of the most important things when we're talking to a prospective client coming into the firm, they want to know that they're dealing with a team that has done this before. And what Callan Family Office, the professionals inside the firm, they offer a level of perspective that not everyone can offer because we have worked with clients in similar situations all over the country. And so it really becomes a defining differentiator for us. We really believe in this fragmented market, there is a very significant opportunity for us to be a leading firm in the ultra high net worth space. And so the other thing that I would say, just from a client standpoint, Clients are really interested in being part of a larger community with other clients like themselves. And so for us, being really disciplined in this ultra high net worth space is not only important to us as professionals, but really important to the clients and prospective clients that we're calling on. That, make, that makes a ton of sense. So it, it's more of the, I, I guess it's, I guess it's, if, if you build it, if you build it in a certain way, you can attract certain clients. So by having that intense focus, it makes it so that the messaging, the professionals you're working with, and the community of clients, which is a really interesting concept that I haven't heard before, is feels at home. And what would you say to some naysayers, maybe, who would say that competing for clients of the caliber that you have is challenging, and it's an unprofitable part of the market because fees are cutthroat, and it takes a lot of really expensive professionals to service relationships like that? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I wouldn't, I would agree it's not easy, but the firms that are attempting to do this, when I take a step back and look at Callan Family Office, 
We have now been in business for 20 months. But what's really special about this firm is we've taken 20 and 30 years of experience to build it. And so when you have an opportunity with the talent that exists inside of our firm today, we're at a very different competitive step-off point than firms that are trying to attempt to dabble in the ultra high net worth market. And then when you compare us to some of the larger firms, we have a pretty significant advantage, Lewis, in that A, we're able to deal with the complexity of these clients. With our technology, we're able to deal with true customization of an experience that is very difficult to do with some of the larger banks. And I would say the other significant competitive advantage that we have is the ability to truly go open architecture. And so historically, and I can remember the language that I've used over the years, we talk about open architecture really in the context of an investment offering that we have. One of the great powers, as you know, of independence is really being able to thoughtfully think through a client situation and bring them the best solution. And so for all those reasons, we think there's a huge opportunity in front of us and feel, really feel great about our positioning after 20 months. Yeah, and it's amazing what you've accomplished in a relatively short period of time. Can you talk a little bit about the, you said the customization of the technology side that's different from what ultra high net worth focus advisors have at a major firm? Can you give a specific example? Yeah, so a couple of things. Number one, from a technology standpoint, there is a technology gap in the industry today for ultra high net worth clients. Most of the technology that exists today is really being built for affluent or high net worth clients. And so we believe there's a significant opportunity that exists really to take the best technology and then with significant investment, really close the gap on the ultra high net worth side. And when I say that, I'm thinking about the multi-generational aspect of these clients trying to integrate the full offering. So integrating the planning work that you're doing, the family office services work, how you think about private capital planning in that business. When we compete against larger firms with the legacy systems that they have, with the architecture that they have, particularly in the large private banks, they just simply can't compete. So we use today Adapar as an example. And what sits on top of that for us is a risk modeling software called Fabric. Our ability to customize an experience specifically for a client is well beyond what we see in the industry today, certainly coming out of the very large firms. So our view is we put a significant amount of time up front. We customize an experience directly for that client, and then we're able to deliver that to them whatever frequency they would like. And it's a significant competitive advantage versus the larger firms. So when you're competing for a $100 million plus relationship, who are you competing against and where are those clients coming from? What were they working with another firm before? And how do you view your own competitive landscape for client acquisition? Many of the clients that have joined the firm, it's been a competitive process. And some of the very largest clients, Lewis, when they decided to leave wherever they were, they put it out to competitive bid or certainly engaged a few firms to compete against. So we have competed against the large private banks, the wirehouses, and some of the larger, more established trust companies and or independent registered investment advisors today. And so that's been the competitive landscape that we've had. What has differentiated us is the talent of the team that I've talked about, the ability to customize. But the other part of it, and I know we'll talk a little bit about this, 
is our relationship with Callan and the deep resources that they're standing behind us with. We feel like we can go toe-to-toe with anyone in the industry, particularly the longer that they've been in business. We know that they're dragging legacy technology behind them, and our ability to go with the leading technology at the launch of the firm puts us in a different competitive advantage. And now our experience over 20 months with transitioning clients has really given us an expertise where we can clearly communicate up front what this is going to look like and set the right expectations for a client once they say yes to us. Yes, you you mentioned it. I was going to ask a little bit later, but I think most folks are familiar with the name Callan in the investment consulting business, and that's Callan LLC. What's the relationship between Callan Family Office, your firm, and Callan LLC, the venerable investment consulting business? Yeah, so you said it. They're one of the largest institutional independent investment consultants in the country. They're advising today over $4.7 trillion of assets. They have been in business now for 50 years, and we do have a strategic relationship and we absolutely carry their name. The one thing I think is interesting is I recently did a video with their CEO, Greg Allen, and we talked about this is the first time in their 50-year history that they've ever extended the brand outside of their firm. And the comment that he made is, this is the first time that they had a group or organization that they trusted that would respect the brand the way it needed to be respected. And so we're honored to have it. We're very protective of their brand in the marketplace. What's really important for advisors and clients is knowing the depth of resources that stand behind us in our firm. It's literally every aspect of Kellen LLC is standing behind uh, Kellen Family Office and the execution for clients. There's no ownership interest between the two firms. We're both completely independent, but we are paying for the services that they provide. And ultimately, when we get up to scale, they'll share in our success as we grow the firm. It's a fascinating idea. We've seen the success that brands like Rockefeller have had in the marketplace, but usually RIAs are unknown brand in in the marketplace. They're creating a brand based upon their names or maybe Greek mythology or something else that a marketing firm told them to do. So when you were thinking about the launch of Callan, which we'll talk about, was it a requirement that you found a, a brand to partner with? And I guess also want to understand more about what's in it for Callan. LLC to lend their credibility and name to your firm? Yeah. So we thought a lot about this. And when you think about starting a firm and having a professional background in a large financial institution, what was really most important for us, Lewis, was having the depth of resources available day one to serve ultra high net worth clients. And so the Callum brand was incredibly attractive to us. What really started the conversation is how they could support Callan Family Office, because we know we needed depth from day one in the launch of the firm. That ultimately evolved into them extending us the brand. So we really believed that was important. What's in it for them financially is we are paying a service fee now for the use of the services of the firm. And then ultimately, when we get up to scale, there'll be a percentage of revenue that we will pay to Callan LLC. So we've kept ownership independent of each other, but ultimately when we scale up, they will share on the success of the firm. Makes sense. And if Callan said no, or it wasn't such a good fit, 
or do you have found someone else that you can leverage their brand and credibility in the marketplace? I think we would have gone back. So one of the things that makes the relationship with Callan so special and what I really believe makes it possible, it's relationships. And we have known them for 20 years. We have worked with them side by side in supporting iterations of our ultra high net worth business. And so I'm not sure how easy it would have been to go to another firm for their brand, but we clearly, if for some reason that this wasn't possible, we would have been looking to make sure we had the depth of resources to launch the firm. But I don't know, given our long-term relationship that we have over 20 years with the leaders of that firm, how we could have easily replicated that. And frankly, there was no one else that we really considered. This was the firm that we wanted to have a strategic partnership with. And we're really grateful that they've agreed to do it. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant idea and a, a learning for any advisor listening is like, it takes a lot of work to build a brand. And if there is a strategic relationship that makes sense for the brand and the company you're trying to build, it's, it's worth exploring. I think most advisors have strategic relationships with law firms or CPA firms and the like. So I think it's a really smart idea to explore. If there's anyone in your own professional network that can help you in a similar capacity as this symbiotic relationship you've struck with Callan. I love it. Let's talk about the, the star of the show. So your break and your team's break from Abbott Downing in 2021. That's been, it's been coming up on almost two years now as we're recording this. But can you talk about the motivations behind breaking away? I'll start with myself. And at the end of the day, I was ready for a change. And so when I think back, even during that period of time a few years ago, and I left in the summer of 21, I left Wells Fargo. And I think about it, I think professionals, you get to a point in your career, you can have a really nice job, but very few times in your career do you potentially have the opportunity to build something special in the industry. And that's what we are really focused on doing inside of Callan Family Office. So an incredible amount of work went into launching the firm in February of 22. What's different from others, and breakaway is a term I've always known, Lewis, but not a term that I use very frequently until I went to the independent space. When we launched the firm, we really did not have any idea how many clients would come. We couldn't know for certain how many people would want to come. And we have been incredibly grateful for the reception for clients and prospective clients who have wanted to join the firm. And I often say, with unlimited resources, we wouldn't have 36 people. We probably have 80 people today. Every week, we continue to hear from professionals that want to learn more and find out, is there an opportunity to become part of Callan Family Office? And so it's been an incredible run for these almost first two years. And we're looking forward to shortly entering into the third. Yeah. So why did the decision to go fully independent? Given your title and your position at Abbott Downing, the amazing relationships that you had, the team that you had behind you, you could have made it a lot easier on yourself and taken a big check from a private bank or from a major wirehouse, or you could have opted for what we call supported independence and partnering with, with someone who's going to provide infrastructure. So why the decision to, let's say, to make it more challenging on yourself and go the fully entrepreneurial route? There were probably three primary decisions that had to get made in terms of what was the right home. The first was because you were in a bank environment. To be fair, I knew I didn't want to go to one of the large financial institutions. But the first decision was, do you want to be part of a regional bank, as an example? And many of them specialize or have a specialization in ultra high net worth. 
And one of the challenges that you find in that environment is the banks in particular, particularly given the regulatory environment, have a very difficult time with the customization that's needed for clients at this level of wealth. There really is a tide inside of many of these banks to eliminate customization, standardize the offering, give all clients the same. And that's very difficult in an environment where you're trying to serve $100 million clients. There's always an exception, a thoughtful exception, but there's always an exception. And so that path did not seem viable long-term to serve clients. Then you look at some wonderfully successful independent firms today. And as we've talked to those firms, no one had exactly what we were looking for. They all had some limitation in terms of if we had an opportunity, we would do it a little bit differently than those firms. And that ultimately led down to a path where we thought an entrepreneurial approach was the best way to go. It allowed us freedom to make the decisions we believe needed to be made to serve this client base. And so that really runs through every aspect of the firm, how we've thought about the investment offering that we have, how we thought about our service offering, family office services, family governance and education, but that ability to be entrepreneurial. And as I mentioned before, take 20 and 30 years of experience and then apply this into a business model with everything you would always hope to be able to do for this client base. That was an opportunity that I thought we really needed to take advantage of. And it's no small thing as well that you're able to do this with the people that you truly want to build this business with. And so you can be selective and really pull together what you believe is the best in the industry. And then I would just say, finally, for us and doing this completely independent and 100% employee-owned, it really allows us the ability to take a long-term view and be thoughtful about our growth. And so we have been very intentional about the professionals that have joined that firm where we continue to be in our recruiting efforts. And we really believe taking that very long-term view is a competitive advantage for us right now. Yeah, it all sounds great. And from what, what you're laying out, it, it seems like a no-brainer that you went down the path that you did. But I guess the question is, how did you do it? A lot of folks would say, yeah, Jack, sign me up exactly for that. I'm with you. I agree with you. But what stops people in their tracks is access to capital. It's the opportunity cost of big checks elsewhere. It's the work and kind of the feeling of, I just don't know what I don't know. So how did you go about even pulling this off? All those things are true. And they're all the questions that have to be asked. I'll say a couple of things. First of all, and how you do it, very fortunate for us to have outstanding advice from the very beginning. And so there's lots of folks, but I really think Brian Hamburger and Sharon Ash at the Hamburger Law Firm have been outstanding for us in terms of thinking through the startup of the firm. And then we early on chose Schwab Family Office to be our primary custodian. I cannot say enough about that team. Literally thinking through every aspect of, A, what do we need to serve clients? And so the technology, the vendors, but also from a business standpoint, as you can appreciate everything from the benefits plan to the 401k to the real estate strategy, they were instrumental in guiding us and the combination of core teams at both of those firms really landed us in a very good spot in order to launch Callan Family Office. I would just say, as special as it was the day that we launched in February 2022, what this team of professionals has now done with some of these original ideas, Lewis, 
has been incredible. And so we can talk about that. In terms of financing, really the credit goes to the partners in the firm. And so essentially the deal was coming in that to be a founding partner of the firm, number one, you had to contribute capital for equity. Number two, everyone forgo, everyone did not take compensation until we were cash flow positive. And so there was no compensation other than a de minimis amount to be able to pay people's benefits in the first year. But everyone decided to not take compensation, to put in capital. And then there was a group of us that personally guaranteed on a line of credit in order to get it started, a line of credit that we've never had to draw on in the firm. And so it has been an incredibly special effort by the 36 professionals now in this firm to build this over these last 20 months. And so that's really how we thought about doing it and starting it without outside capital and really how we leaned on what we believe are some of the most talented people in the industry in terms of advising us on setting up this firm, both in the Hamburger Law Firm and Schwab. So on the capital piece, you have some pretty special people to be willing not only to forego compensation, but to take the risk of going out into the great unknown and actually writing checks. So this was, I mean, it makes, I'd say, more sense for a larger advisor who has a NASDAQ, who is very well off financially, most likely, or potentially, but even down to like the administrative assistants and the the non-advisors, they all participated in the same capacity. No. So anyone that was not a partner received compensation from day one, competitive compensation, discretionary incentive plan, full benefits package, as well as 401k. So outside of the 23 partners that founded the firm, everyone had a competitive compensation package to start. Understood. And the partners that started the firm, were they all your previous colleagues at Abbott Downing? It turned out to be all previous colleagues that we were with in Abbott Downing. And so everybody has their roots back into the Abbott Downing business. That's, it's a, aside from the amount of assets that you're able to win over at Callan to pull off a break with that many folks under the cover of darkness is no easy task, but that's a job well done. And I, I, what you're saying too around and how to think about distributing equity is really interesting. I think every firm has their own belief and approach, whether it's just you get a grant based upon your business, or it's more of like you're entitled to this based upon your role, some make you earn it, but to literally have people put skin in the game at the most vulnerable time in their professional lives, that says a lot about the caliber of people that you were recruiting and also about the conviction that you all had in this business being successful. Lewis, that's one of the reasons I'm so incredibly optimistic about Callan Family Office. I cannot tell you the extent that these 36 professionals have gone to in building out this firm. When a prospect has needed something on a Monday morning, I've seen people work all through the weekend and all through the night to be able to deliver it. When we're under a tight time frame for an RFP, I've seen the same thing. And one of the great benefits and beauties, I think, of the firm are the cultural underpinnings that we have. And I'll just give you one example of it. Inside of the firm today, you would not hear anyone say, this is in my book, this is my client, this is my this or that. Everyone in the firm views it as a client of Kellen Family Office. And so when we have a new perspective opportunity, we're literally pulling together a small team of people. But Lewis, not everyone on the team is going to be part of the final pitch. They may not even have anything to do with the client long term, 
but the team believes they have something unique and special to add and positioning us in the best possible light to try to win that business. And so people have come together to do that time and time again. And it really is incredibly special and not easy to find in the industry. I would agree with you. I also wanted to comment that the decision to self-finance the move was, I'd say, a, a major strategic coup for Callan going forward. I would assume you had ample clients and very wealthy people in your network that would have that would have been happy to write a check to become equity owners in the business, perhaps private equity firms or any number of folks in the industry. But the decision to retain much more of the equity for the employees, I think is going to serve you very well. It's always a challenge, just chicken and the egg for breakaways. It's like, I need the capital, I have deferred compensation I'm walking away from. It's expensive to start this, so I should sell some equity. But the flip side is you're selling your business at a low point and you have this partner in perpetuity. So typically the guidance we give to our clients is figure out a way to do exactly what you did. Bootstrap it, pull out of your own savings, your own, your own capital. Next layer is to get a line of credit. And even if it's an expensive interest rate, which I'm sure it is given when you broke, at a minimum, it's cheaper to finance through debt than it is to sell equity. So I just wanted to call that out because I think another very smart and intentional move you made to start Callan in, in the right way. I really appreciate that. And we got good advice on that score as well. If it was possible, this was the way to go. Of course, we never reached out to a client and asked them to consider. But to your point, we had any number of firms as we were working for the launch offer to engage in a conversation about providing capital. So there was no shortage of those opportunities, but we really believe this was the best way to get this firm launched and get started and could not be happier with the result. And any transition, whether it's from UBS to Morgan Stanley or to from Raymond James to LPL, whatever the transition is a major business and life decision. But for an individual like you coming from a private bank with such a large business and such complex relationships, I have to ask, had you anticipated making such a big move? And what was your thinking about how this move could impact your business and your personal life? It was obviously a huge decision. And I never really had seriously in my line of sight to launch an independent firm. When I left, I was incredibly fortunate to have so many opportunities. I was the president of Abbott Downing. I was leading the Eastern region of the private bank for Wells Fargo. They had asked me to become the interim head of the private bank nationally. And when I think back on that, even now, to say that I cared about that team would be an understatement. I cared about that team. I cared about the clients that we were serving and wanted to thoughtfully grow that business. And when you think about it, though, banks do follow similar patterns. And I'm just going to just make a comment about the ultra high net worth business in particular, which really was important to getting to this decision of independence. When you look at any of the ultra high net worth businesses inside of banks today, it's typically highly dependent well, one senior executive sponsor. And when there's a change in the business, there's generally a pattern that follows. The first thing that happens is the new leader looks and says, it's a very expensive delivery model. And so that's the first observation, quickly followed by most of the profitability comes from loans, deposits, or asset management. 
And so they wonder about all these other services that you're offering and what the effectiveness of that is. And so the result of that typically is let's start to cut costs. And if there's something unique and special outside of the banking business and asset management, then they look to scale it. If it's good for these large clients, let's scale it for clients across the industry. And then the other thing that will happen is they'll look for synergies. They'll take the head of commercial lending and put them over wealth management. All of those things make it very difficult, Lewis, for an ultra high net worth practice or business inside of a bank to survive long term. And so while it was a difficult decision and not easy to get there, and it was an incredibly heavy lift by the professionals inside of this firm to launch, we knew it was the best way to serve clients long term. And we were really guided by that from the very beginning. We knew this was the best way to do it. And for all the reasons that we've talked about and the commitments of the partners and the employees, we knew we would make this successful. We didn't know the time frame to do it, but we knew we would be successful long term. And as I said, we couldn't be more happy with this first 20 months. And if you can remember, how far out were you thinking about, like when did the idea of we're going to start a multifamily office in the RIA channel, when did that idea enter your mind? And how long did it take you to get from ideation to handing in your resignation letter? They were really separate. So I knew it was time to go and I wanted to focus on something different. And I had many people call and say, when I would ask questions, and I remember a call at one point from Sarah Hamilton, who runs the Family Office Exchange. And I just said, what's the best way to serve ultra high net worth clients long term? And she said, an independent firm. So an independent RIA, she believed was the best. And that was really the first person that directly planted that in my mind. When I left, to be honest, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I was talking to many different people. Certainly the idea of Kellen Family Office was not directly on my radar screen. And then as the summer progressed, I became more convinced that the independent space was the place that I wanted to professionally be. And then over the course of the late fall and into the beginning of the new year is really when all the pieces came together. And we had a core belief that this was going to be something special. Callan was committed to our success and willing to be a strategic partner. And we made the call to launch the firm at the end of February. So you took a bit of a different path in that you were out of, you were out of the job for a period of time before launching. M- most folks who break away, they're employed by XYZ firm on Friday at 8.59 a.m. And then they're employed by their new firm at 9.01 a.m. So it's, can you talk a little bit about just being out in the wilderness for a couple of months? And how did you think about bringing your clients over? Obviously, when you leave, the relationships are working with someone else. So how did you think about portability and just the stress of being out and not having your next thing lined up? So from my standpoint, first of all, I felt very fortunate. I never worried that there would be a job, Lewis. No matter what I chose to do, I never worried about that. But I did believe I needed the time and the space to think about what the next chapter was and what was the best way ultimately to do it. Part of an entrepreneurial approach, particularly in the launch of Callan Family Offices, we actually didn't know. We didn't know exactly if the clients would come. We didn't know exactly how many professionals would come into the firm. We knew we wanted to build something special. And so 
having a break, leaving the day-to-day work that I was involved with was really critical to be able to think through and focus and ask lots of questions from lots of folks in the industry. A, how are they approaching it? What's their business model? What they believe is the best way to do it? How have they financed it? Who are the capital players? Who are the custodians? All of those pieces really gave an opportunity to think through those pieces and then ultimately launch the firm. And as I said, you don't know the timeframes when things will happen, but I really believed that we would attract the most talented professionals at the end of the day into this firm. You just didn't know that you would have success out of the gate and have 36 professionals after almost two years. Right. I think it's always a, um, it's a, I'd say a, a paradox or a conundrum for advisors thinking of breaking away, especially those coming from a, a private bank where portability is much less of a sure thing. It's, I need a, a world-class team behind me to bring clients over on the one hand, but I also don't know what's going to come over. And I have long tail risk that nothing really comes over or 30% of the business comes over. So how did you think about making the upfront investments and attracting the right professionals first and being the, we'll say the field of dreams approach. If you build it, they will come rather than waiting to hire and build once clients were over. When you think about launching the firm, you have a strategy from the very beginning of what's the foundation that you're going to lay. And then you think about who are the first people that are ultimately going to come into the firm. And so we executed a strategy to get started, but you always have the ability, if things weren't working out perfectly, to slow down a little bit, to rethink part of your strategy. So I guess at the end of the day, there was always flexibility in our approach in terms of how we were thinking about the business long term making sure that we had success from the very early days. But that's part of the excitement of all this and part of the excitement of the way Callan Family Office was started. These are not financial advisors that are leaving with protocol, to your point. And so we had a view that if we did this the right way, it would be extraordinarily attractive to clients long-term. And we believe that in the firm today, and so today when people are joining, They are leaving and joining right away and beginning a process of notifying clients that they could come to the firm. But at the end of the day, we really think we've just scratched the surface, Lewis, in terms of this opportunity set that's in front of us. Again, there's not a week that goes by that we don't hear from a professional inquiring about joining the firm. And I think we'll see a significant amount of this in 2024. Yes, let's talk about that then. So now that the foundation is built and you've spent all this time and energy um, building a really impressive firm, it seems like inorganic growth now is on, is on the radar screen. So whether it's acquisitions potentially or recruiting experienced financial advisors or private bankers into the business, um, can you talk about how you think about a fit and why would someone be attracted to, to join Callan? We're really intentional from a cultural standpoint to make sure we have the right cultural fit in the firm. So when you look at Callan Family Office today, geographically, what we've talked about on the East Coast, the Midwest, and the West, that was really intentional. We knew that, for lack of a better word, we need culture carriers in each of our market. We need the foundation to be set with people that carry the culture of Callan Family Office. And so now what we're really focused on is completing recruiting for our national team. So our particular focus right now is Midwest and West Coast. And we're also really focused in on investing in our service offering. And just over the last few months, we've made significant investments in family office services, 
in family governance and education and in our planning capability. And so we're going to continue to do that in 2024. But from a recruiting standpoint, we'll be selective from a cultural standpoint. What we're looking for are professionals that have significant experience calling and being successful with ultra high net worth clients, foundations, and endowments. And for us, having that experience is really the key. We really believe with our levers of organic growth, the relationships that they can bring to the table, that's really the best fit for us. And then adding on top of the culture carriers that we have inside the firm, we think is the best way to grow and maintain the culture of a national firm. So that's really what we're focused in on. We're being really selective in inviting people to join the firm and having those conversations today. And so I expect in the first half of next year, we'll see some more success. Yeah, it seems like a really interesting story. And I guess the pitch to a prospective advisor is, look, I know how much it cost me and how much energy it took to build this infrastructure. And you could go build it on your own, but then you have to hire all of these very expensive professionals to surround you. You can go to a private bank or a major brokerage firm, but you're not going to get the level of customization that you get here. Am I on the right track as far as what the pitch to a prospective advisor sounds like? It's absolutely the case. And so what they are thinking about is how would a client of mine fit inside of a Callan family office today? And to your point, once they've seen the technology and the customization that's available, they see the breadth and depth of the service offering, they can envision how their client could fit. And then when you see the collaboration that exists inside the firm and that no one's going to come into this firm, Lewis, and be on an island, right? They're going to be fully supported by everyone in the firm to guarantee their success. They know it's a better solution than where they are today. Just a matter of time, in our view, for them to make the decision. It's not easy. People are comfortable often in the environments that they're in. But when you look at the offering that we have, what we can provide clients based on our relationship with Callan and everything that we've built, it's a compelling offering for an advisor that wants to take a long-term view. And for select advisors, we're giving them now the opportunity to buy into some equity. And so that for them is very attractive as well. Yeah, I would agree. I have three more questions to take us home today. So now that you're the CEO, obviously you had leadership positions at at your predecessor firm, but how has your day in the life changed? Well, I can tell you what the day in the life is. So first of all, it is a total honor for me to be the CEO of Callan Family Office. The things that I'm really focused on every day, I always am thinking about our clients and the team. And so how can we better serve them? How can we better support the team? Where I spend a fair amount of time as well is thinking about our growth long-term you can appreciate this. There's no shortage of opportunities that exist today. Maybe one of the bigger challenges is staying focused because there's always something else to be focused on in the independent space, but really thinking through the growth strategy for us, what's next and how to activate. And I'd say probably the third thing that I think a lot about is just overall risk management. It's an expectation that we have in our firm. It's an expectation that clients have. And so really making sure that a group of us in particular firm-wide were focused on it, but really making sure we're thinking through every aspect of risk management inside of the firm so that we can continue to deliver on the value proposition. They're the things that I focused in on the most. And when I think about most of my days, Lois, they're the things that I ult- ultimately come back to. And is it very different than when you're at Abba Downing? 
it's different than being at a firm like that because when you're at a firm at a large financial institution, I joke with some colleagues, but I've had all these wonderful opportunities, but I've started on third base. All the infrastructure was there. The financial reporting, the strategies, the real, everything was there. This is quite different. And so you spend time both on the strategic side, but then working with many people across the firms, you really get into the weeds of all the detail of how this firm needs to execute day to day, how we're set up. And so it's different from that standpoint. You're going from two different extremes and um, spending a lot of time making sure that the details are all accounted for. Well said. So with hindsight, what's one or two things you would, you would have done differently? Let's say in the, whether it's in the transition or since you launched the firm, what's, what are some mistakes you made or things you wish you could turn the clock back on that other folks can learn from? Yeah, I probably have a longer list than two things. I don't know if it's a strength or a weakness, but Lewis, most days what I would share with you is I learned a long time ago uh, that I often after a day, I'll reflect on what happened and I will be critical of myself thinking about how I answered a question, how I showed up, whether it's in a client meeting or with a team meeting, how I communicated something. So I'm always thinking about things that can be better. I would say when I think about the launch of the firm, the one thing that I would just advise people to be thinking through is this whole idea of outsourcing. At the end of the day, everything comes back into the firm. You need people to help you launch a firm with the size and the scale of a Callan family office, but the work in many ways comes back into the firm. And so everyone that pitches on the idea, use this technology to free you to do what you do best working with clients. There's a bit of a myth in all that, and you need to be prepared with the resources to handle the detail and the work that's needed to execute the firm day to day. I would say that's one of the biggest things. And then when I look back over what's been accomplished by this team, there are certain aspects of it that maybe we just had to learn by going through it, but I'll just use the CRM system. We did not have any internal acumen on standing up a CRM system. It took us the better part of the year, Lewis, really even to get going with it. And so it wasn't until we hired an incredibly talented professional, Courtney Hayes, that had deep experience in there that we were finally able to activate and execute on it. And so when I think about it, it's that outsourcing idea, but also try to recognize earlier on when you really don't have the acumen. Adapar just doesn't come out of a box, right? And ready to go. A CRM system is the same. And so really thinking through those pieces of it can help you even potentially move faster and don't be afraid to invest in it. As it relates to the big foundational decisions of launching the firm, if it wasn't for Schwab and the Hamburger Law Firm, we would have made many more mistakes, but they really got us to make the right foundational decisions for the business. And so we've just been able to build on that ever since and feel really good about it. Yeah. On the outsourcing piece, it sounds like like you're not saying don't outsource. It's more so outsource, but you have to keep two hands on the wheel. You can't just outsource and say, okay, I, I'm not responsible anymore. It's more about outsourcing some things, but still having ultimate responsibility and accountability for whatever it is that you've decided to outsource to a third party. Yeah. And so I think it's really too, you're hundred percent right, but it's also thinking through just resources, right? And so making a few additional investments up front because the work will come back. The outsource providers need to be monitored for accuracy and completeness and work ultimately will come back with errors or need to be reviewed again. And 
some of those things, when you think you fully outsource something, yes, yeah, so you have to keep an eye on it, but you have to make some investments to make sure everyone is executing the way that you need them to, because you're never fully outsourcing. It's always something is coming back into the firm and you need to be prepared from that from the very beginning. Last question for you. If, and I'll say when we do this conversation again, five years from now, what do you expect Callum to look like? What's going to be most important to us is that clients and advisors, the assets I believe will take care of themselves and clients will continue to come in many ways. If we keep doing the great work that is happening inside the firm, what I'm hopeful happens with the next time we sit down, our clients and advisors are really validating in the market, in the industry, that we are either well on our way or we have become the destination firm for ultra high net worth clients. And we're recognized for that. And so at our core vision is to be the destination firm in the industry. And that needs to come from clients and advisors. Then we will know that we've had the success that we need. So that's what we're most focused on. And then we'll be thinking about thoughtful growth along the way. I can't guess where the assets will be. They'll, of course, be significantly larger where they are. But what we can say is it'll be a thoughtful growth strategy. We'll do it in a way that continues to honor the client service model we have and our value proposition. Jack, this has been an incredible conversation. Just the way that you've been able to, I think, succinctly articulate the value of the RIA model or the family office model for ultra, ultra high net worth clients and how it's specifically different versus what an ultra high net worth focused advisor can do within the confines of a brokerage firm, to me was my biggest takeaway. And it's amazing how much you and the team have accomplished in short order, especially after taking some time to not break away immediately, but to really figure out your right course of action. So lots of learnings for everyone. Also just on how you access capital and thought about self-financing versus debt versus selling equity. I really appreciate all the wisdom you've shared today. Lewis, I really appreciate this opportunity to have the conversation and I very much look forward to the next one we'll have. Me too. Curious about where, why, and how advisors like you are moving? Download the latest advisor transition report to learn more, including intel on recruiting deals and our insight and analysis on the latest trends in the wealth management space. You'll find it at diamond-consultants.com forward slash transition report. Or if you'd like to talk, feel free to give us a call at 908-879-1002.